0: Thank you for listening to an audio resource from Stanwich Church located in Greenwich and Stamford, Connecticut. The vision of Stanwich Church is to know Christ and make Him known.
1: New Testament lesson for today is from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. This can be found in page 1082 of your Pew Bible. The number of those who believed in Jesus grew exponentially after the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. These verses describe the early Christian community that began to form as a result. A reading from Acts chapter 2, beginning with the 42nd verse. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word.
0: One of the things we're very excited for this upcoming year is the opening of our Stanford campus. Currently, Pastor Gina and I are getting together and praying and planning and meeting with our core team every week. And as we do so, we can't help but get the sense that God is going to do incredible things through this ministry. During our planning time, though, I've had some really interesting questions asked of me about the Stanford campus and Stanford worship services. For example, in Stanford, are we going to have smoke machines and a light show on Sunday mornings? My suggestion is only when Pastor Nathan preaches, of course. (laughs) I'm also asked about the sanctuary itself. Will it be well lit like this one and centered on an organ? Also, I've had questions about the worship music itself. Will we sing classical choral pieces, or will it be like a Coldplay concert? Also, people have asked about the sermons. Will the sermons be more like TED Talks or like seminary dissertations? I've had questions beyond just the service itself as well about the campus. For example, Pastor, why are we going to Stanford? I mean, what business do we have going there at all? All good questions, by the way, and I'm thankful when I'm asked them. I've had questions about how the church is going to grow. How are we even going to reach people? Do people even go to church anymore, Pastor? Well, if you haven't noticed, the sermon title for this morning is The Church Grows. And God is actually faithfully growing our church right now. And I think our text this morning is going to answer some of these questions and even more. But before we even get there, I want to talk about why for a moment we're going to Stanford. We're not going to Stanford out of obligation. No one's telling us we have to be there. Rather, we're going there out of opportunity for God's kingdom. We're not going to Stanford because we think we're better than the people that live in Stanford. Some of you live in Stanford. We're not better than you, don't worry. We're actually going to Stanford for the opposite reason, because we know we aren't. In fact, we're going there because of the same reason people came here 292 years ago to plant this church, for God's kingdom and his glory, to reach the people in the neighborhood. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret sauce, though, about the service this morning. So what exactly are we going to be doing in Stanford? So I can give you a picture of that. We see it in our passage this morning. We're actually going to do in Stanford what this church has been doing for 292 years and what the church globally has been doing for almost 2000 years. And that's simply that we're going to commit ourselves to the apostles teaching, to the fellowship and breaking of bread, to prayer, because we know when we commit ourselves to these things, God is faithful to show up. And when he shows up, it's a little scary. That's okay, though. Because when he does so, when he shows up, it leads us actually into radical generosity and he grows his church. So we're gonna focus on these four things this morning, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, and fear and generosity. So let's look at this first idea about the apostles' teaching. If you've closed your Bibles, you can open them back up. We're on page 1082 of your Pew Bible, Acts chapter 2. Picking up in verse 42, it says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Let's just stop right there. So where are we at in the scriptures? Who is this group, they, that's being referenced to in verse 42? Well, if you remember two weeks ago, Pastor Nathan preached a sermon on a sermon, a little bit of inception going on there. And uh, he preached about Peter And Peter's message post-Pentecost. If you remember in Jerusalem, there were Jews and proselytes to Judaism from all over the Roman Empire that had come to Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost. And it's in this time that Peter stands up and gives this incredible sermon, much better sermon than I'll probably ever preach. And it says, 3,000 people were baptized that day and added to the church. And so now you have all these brand new Christians. And this is who this text is referencing when it says they. So what's the first thing these brand new Christians do? Well, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. The word here, devote, in Greek, literally means steadfastly committed. And what we see here, right in Acts, is that the church, since its very inception has committed itself to one thing primarily, and that's the apostles' teaching. So what did this look like in the first century? Well, you get an idea in the New Testament because the New Testament authors are constantly referencing the Old Testament and how Jesus is an answer to messianic prophecies. So I just want you to picture for a moment a first century living room in Jerusalem. Maybe a dozen people or so gathered in that first century living room. And I want you to imagine the disciple John. For some reason, I picture John with some really long brown flowing hair. (laughs) And John's seated there around this interesting group of people. On his left is the Orthodox rabbi who happened to be there on the day that Peter was preaching. He's in his full garb and he's come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. On his right, is a slave that was running some errands that day for his master. And he happened to hear the word of God too. You can tell he's a slave because on his arm is the brand of his owner's family's seal. Across the room is a wealthy woman from Rome. She was on business travel to Jerusalem at the time. And John and Peter happened to walk by her one day. And she was sick. And their shadow through the Holy Spirit healed her And she came to believe, yeah, there's actually a story in Acts where that happens. Pretty incredible stuff. And so as John's gathered in this living room with this diverse group of people, what does he do? Well, he reminds them of the prophecies in Isaiah about how Jesus was born of a virgin, about how Jesus was the suffering servant that went to the cross for them. I wonder if John even shared eyewitness accounts. If he said to them, I was there on the day they crucified our Lord. I saw when the Romans nailed him to the cross. I saw when he bled and died for you and for me. I imagine it was in these conversations in the first century where John and the other disciples probably thought to themselves, we need to write this stuff down for the next generations. You see, this is the apostles' teaching. And this is the primary thing the church has focused on for 2,000 years. And this is what we primarily focus on here at Sandwich Church. We believe the same thing that the church fathers believed. That the word of God, the Bible, this is where we find the apostles' teachings today, that it's all sufficient. In other words, that it contains everything you need for this life, and for the next. And we know that the church fathers believed this because of what the Apostle Paul would write to young Pastor Timothy, a pastor at the church in Ephesus. He would say this in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is why I annoy some of you sometimes, because you come to me and you say, Pastor, I just wish God would speak to me. To which I respond, he already has. In his word. Just open up the Bible. And he's faithful to speak. So maybe you're a brand new Christian, like this first century audience, and you're wondering well, what do I do? Where do I start? Well, I suggest the fourth book of the New Testament, the Gospel of John. Pick it up and read it for yourself. You'll be surprised at how the Spirit speaks to you. Join a life group. Sit in a living room. That's what we do in life groups. All we do is study the Word of God because we believe that it is all sufficient and it contains everything you'll need and more. Now, the first century church, though, they didn't just devote themselves to the Bible. They didn't just sit around reading the Bible all day. And we don't just devote ourselves to that either. We actually devote ourselves to something else that's incredibly important as well. And that's the fellowship and the breaking of bread. And that's what we read on about in Acts chapter 2. That's what it says going on in verse 42. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Fellowship, this word in the New Testament comes from the Greek word koinonia. The root word is konos, and it's used 52 times in the New Testament. This is the first time it shows up in the book of Acts, but the first time we see it in the New Testament is on the lips of Jesus. And so what exactly is koinonia? Well, in its simplest form, koinonia is family. Family. The church is a new family. You might be reminded of what Pastor Gina preached on last week, how we are adopted by God the Father personally. He adopts us as his sons and daughters. But we aren't only adopted by him. We're adopted by a new family where we work out our salvation together and where we're conformed to his image. And every once in a while, God will reveal to you the power of this family. I've had a few of these moments in my life. One was a few years ago. I was away with the army for a few months in the Middle East, and I was in Kuwait for a couple of months. And there's only one church in the entire country of Kuwait. It's the National Evangelical Church of Kuwait. So every once in a while, I would sneak off base and go to the service. Don't tell my commanders I did that, by the way. And I would attend this service. That was for Indian expats, people from India, from the province of Kerala. I love this service because they translated it into English and also because they had this wonderful meal together. But I remember sitting in this service, worshiping Jesus with these people that didn't look like me. They didn't speak the same language as me. We didn't have the same nationality or ethnic origin And yet for the first time in months, I had this strange sense that I was home. And what was so humbling for me is after the service, they invited me to their meal every Sunday. And these people, they were in Kuwait working for nothing, serving the Kuwaitis. These were poor people, but they shared their food with me because we were family because we are a part of a higher fellowship. You see, in some ways, I shared more in common with these people than I did with a lot of the soldiers that I shared the same uniform with. And this is the interesting thing about the family of God, about this koinonia. It's incredibly diverse. And that's part of its beauty. That's part of the power of God, that he could unite people from every tribe, language, and tongue. And we actually see Jesus doing this with the 12. Maybe you've never noticed this, but the 12, they weren't actually all on the same page. 10 of them, they're referenced by who their lineage was, who their fathers were, which is totally normal in first century Judaism. But two of them are mentioned and they're described by their political affiliation. Simon the Zealot, and Matthew the tax collector. You see, Simon the zealot was a part of a political party that was actively killing Romans to end the occupation. He had committed his life to this. And Matthew was all in with the occupiers. These two men would have normally killed each other. And yet in Jesus... They become a part of a new family, a part of a new fellowship, a part of a new koinonia. You see, I think the New Testament authors, they intentionally include that detail because they're giving us a lesson there, church. And this is the beauty of the church, of the family, that we don't all share the same perspective or look alike or talk alike. This is the power of God, that he can unite all people. And the incredible thing about us being diverse is that what Proverbs says actually becomes true, that iron sharpens iron. You see, it's in the diversity that we're challenged, that we're stretched, that we're forced to change. And you know that this is from God because of what the gospel teaches all of us. You see, because at the heart of the gospel message is everybody's wrong. It's true, but everybody's loved and everybody's called to change. You see, and this message, it's worked out in fellowship with one another. This is the beauty of koinonia. So maybe you're wondering, well, how can Jesus even bring unity to two guys like that? Simon and Matthew, how can he bring unity to the church today? Well, I can tell you, it's not possible in our own strength to have unity, but with God, all things are possible. And the main way God unifies his church is by getting us to pray together. That's what we see here right in Acts 42. Did you notice that? It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The early church from its onset was devoted to prayer. And this is incredibly important for us. It reminds me of what famous Danish theologian Soren Kierkegaard once wrote, prayer does not change God, but it changes him who prays. So how does prayer change the one who prays? Well, believe it or not, prayer is what we were all designed for because we were all designed for a relationship with God. And in prayer, we grow in that relationship and God conforms us to his image. You see, in prayer, what we acknowledge is first that we are not God. Something that's actually pretty challenging for, for me to admit sometimes. And not only do we acknowledge that in prayer, but we acknowledge that we need God. You see, prayer, it's the ultimate leveler. Because it reveals to us that all ground is level at the foot of the cross. You see, in prayer, we're actually re-centered, not on ourselves and on God. Our focus shifts off of ourselves and onto him, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is what changes us. This is what reorients us. This is what unifies us. So, okay, what happens when we commit ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers? What does God do? Well, what we see here in Acts 2 is that he shows up in signs and wonders, which is a little scary. So let's read about that in verse 43. It says this, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The word translated here for awe from Greek is the word phobos. It's the word we get phobia from. So a more direct translation would just be fear. Fear. And fear came upon every soul. And this is what happens when God moves. When God shows up in signs and wonders. The first time I prayed for someone and they were clearly physically uh, healed, my first response was fear. It was actually scary because it was something that I didn't do and I couldn't control. And I just want to take a moment to redeem the fear of God for us. In the book of Proverbs, we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. So there's something in this. There's a moment in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 4 where Paul, he's mulling over this fear of the Lord in connection with his relationship with Jesus and the church and himself. And he says this really interesting thing. I love it. It's 1 Corinthians 4. He says this. I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. In other words, he says to the church at Corinth, I don't care what you guys think of me. But he goes on, indeed, I do not even judge myself. He says, I don't even care what I think about myself. Kind of a wild thought, right? My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. So what is Paul saying here? Well, if you think about it, he's referencing how in life, when we go throughout life, it's almost as if we're in a courtroom every day and we're trying to prove ourselves to others and to ourselves that we matter, that we're important. And what Paul is acknowledging here is through the fear of the Lord, through what Jesus has done for him, that he's able to step out of the courtroom. Right? The verdict is in. He's been acquitted. And this is true for anyone who's in Christ. You see, at the heart of the gospel is this that Jesus stepped into the courtroom and he received the verdict that we all deserve, and that's death, so that we could receive the verdict that he deserved which is eternal life and forgiveness. You see, and when we recognize this, it actually does something incredible. It sets us free. Not just free from caring about what others think, but free from caring about what we think about ourselves. That's true freedom that we can find in Christ. And that's what God desires for each one of us. So what happens when God sets us free? What happens when we fear him rightly? Well, it leads us to doing things we never thought we could do. One of which is being radically generous with one another. That's how the early church responds. Did you see that in verse 44? It says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions And belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is radical generosity. Now, just a few contextual notes. This passage, it's been abused throughout the centuries. In the 20th century, people tried to say that this supported socialism, but this is not ancient socialism. There's a difference. Socialism is always top down, it's always imposed. the powers that be. But this isn't top-down generosity. This is generosity from the heart. These people are choosing to give freely to one another, not out of compulsion, but out of love. And believe it or not, church, we still do this today. This is a generous church. In fact, everything we're experiencing in this room right now is because of someone's generosity. Think about it with me for a moment. This pulpit, this wood, it was paid for by someone's tithe, someone giving freely to the church. The warm air we're breathing right now, it was paid for by someone giving freely to the church. This very building that we are in right now, worshiping Jesus in, was given freely. And for those of you that were here during the capital campaign, you know that it was sacrificial giving. People gave far above and beyond what they ever thought they could. And this is what the fear of the Lord motivates us to do. It motivates us to be generous with one another. And this generosity, it's not just financial. In fact, the very reason I'm standing before you today is because of other people's generosity. The reason I'm a pastor is because I had mentors who poured into my life as a young man. In fact, I had a mentor that led a Bible study for me when I was in middle school. By the way, if you think I'm annoying now, you should have met me in eighth grade. His name was Walt Markowski. And he loved this group of boys. He taught us the Bible. He showed us Christ. And I doubt he saw any fruit at the time, but he does now. You see, this is how the kingdom grows. It's through generosity. And that's what we see ultimately in this text is that when we commit ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, breaking in bread of prayer, and when we give to one another, what we see ultimately is God, he uses this not for us, but to grow his church for those who have yet to join us. That's what we read here in verse 47. It says, and praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, the church is ultimately an organization that isn't designed for those in it. It's designed for those who have yet to join. And this is what excites me about Stanford. We're building this building and launching this campus not for us, but for those who have yet to join us for the people in Stanford that God loves and that he's calling back to himself. This is why we're going to Stanford. Not for us, but for him and for his glory and for his kingdom. In the coming weeks during Lent, we're gonna hear more about that. But I know there's someone still probably thinking, well, pastor, you've conveniently left out what the worship music will be like in Stanford. And you're right, I have. And I'll hold to it. And I haven't mentioned it honestly because I don't really know what it's going to look like if I'm honest. But I do know this that in Stanford, our church will continue to devote itself to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, breaking of bread, and the prayer. Because when we do so, God shows up, which is scary, but it leads to generosity and the growth of His kingdom. Thanks be to God. To learn more about the mission and vision of Stanwich Church and how
1: you can get involved, please visit StandwichChurch.org.